1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here, and I apologize for all the distractions here. I guess we will not have a PowerPoint this morning, and that might be better for me and, well, for you, but we'll... Still definitely can preach the word and can dig into the word and can um, see what God has for us in scripture. This morning I'm going to be um, continuing my series on holiness and I think the last time I spoke, we spoke um, about what holiness is and I'm just going to ask us a few questions, see if we remember a little about um, the last message I had on holiness and I'll introduce the topic I have this morning, holiness a lifestyle. And holiness starts in the heart. I'm going to break it down into two pieces. The first one is holiness is a heart cleansed from an evil conscience. And then holiness is a living faith. And this morning we're going to talk about holiness being a part um, starting with our heart. 
and I know our Sunday school lesson, we um, dove in the, into that already, and that's kind of exciting to think about um, this whole idea of our heart. But before we do that, I just want to ask us, what is holiness? Does anybody remember um, what we said, or maybe you can remember another definition? What is holiness? Anyone? I know it's easy to forget um, words spoken to us, especially messages. Holiness is something is holiness is to be set apart. Holiness for us as Christians should mean a special person set apart from the world. Okay, being set apart. Now the sex, second question I want to ask us is why holiness? Does anybody remember that? question, or why is it important for us to be holy? Anybody remember the scripture reference that I spoke to? Okay, it's not the one I was thinking of. I think I may have mentioned that. Yes, follow peace with all men. Don't forget that part of it. Um, And holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. But today we want to talk about holiness inside. Or what does it mean to have a clean heart? And I had to go back um, to my time at camp. And I remember as a family worker working at a boys camp, we would get many, many um, applications for boys who came to camp with some needs. Some of the applications, a lot of the boys had ADHD, ADD. ODD, um, RAD, uh, bipolar, and a lot of the, some of these, especially when you think about bipolar, you would say they were genetic problems that they can't be helped. But by the time the boy would leave camp, I've met quite a few boys who went back to a psychiatrist, or I met some who went back to a psychiatrist after they left camp, and they said, you do not have um, bipolar anymore. What happened? And I'm not here to talk about camp, but I want to talk about our hearts. What happened? The boys that would come to camp often would come with many needs. And something happened inside their hearts to change them while they were at camp. Um, it's also interesting, you know, I remember this one boy by the name of Tim McDonald. He came to camp with many needs. A lot of those diagnoses I just gave you. And he left camp looking a lot different than he came to camp. Um, he could barely look at you. His head was hanging. He had, um, he was, yeah, I could mention many, many things. I just remember him in particular. Um, he looked totally different. So when our heart changes, our outside, ex- our outside expressions and, and our outside will also change, uh, which we'll talk about that in um, next uh, sermon that we have. I'd like to ask the question, What needs to take place in our hearts in order for us to become holy? I think most of us know the answer here. We need a new attitude, and this does not take place unless we have a heart change, unless we meet the Lord. Um, A change of heart begins with a person becoming born again. Jesus made that very clear to Nicodemus. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, or he cannot be saved. Um, so a heart has to change, or a heart change has to take place, and it needs to start with, of course, um, 
a salvation experience. Being a born again is the seed in sanctification or holiness that grows from a small mustard seed into a big tree. It's the start of holiness. Without being born again, we are at best just a very good person or a moralist. So in order for us to change, we need to have a born again experience. And this morning I want to talk about two things in particular. First of all, I'm going to talk about salvation. Um, Because salvation is the key to us changing and having that heart change. And I just want to spend some time this morning taking a real good look at what salvation is. Um, I know that's a little scary to talk about that because the more I dug into that, the more I realized that um, there's a lot of different views on how this is. And I hope um, I can look into the Word of God and take the Word of God, and this is just not just an opinion of mine of what truly what salvation truly is, but it's from the Word of God. Um, and I do invite um, any corrections or any thoughts you have for me uh, when we start talking about salvation. I also want to keep this um, as practical as we can. Um, it is hard to think about a heart change and how that takes place and still talk about practical living. But it is. I think it's a big part of it. And we have to start with the heart before we can get into um, how it looks, how we live out that practical life. Let's look at what the Bible says about salvation. And of course, you know, I'll probably bring up the verse in Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. By grace are you saved. I want to make that very clear this morning. Um, I think we all know that. I think we all believe that. But I just want to make it clear again. We are saved only by the grace of God. What about the good works? Philippians 3, 9 says this, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Got that? Righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not of works. Okay? We are saved by grace alone. And I think we have to believe that. We have to get that in our hearts and understand that. Um, and we have to appreciate what God did for us. And I know a lot of you, that's not new preaching at all. Um, you've heard that many times by people, um, pastors here before. Our salvation comes from faith alone. It is so important for us to understand that we are not saved by our works. Let's look at Jesus' question. And I want you to turn with me um, to the story of the publican and sinners. Oh, I don't have the reference here. I had it on my PowerPoint. Um, let's look at Jesus' questions in the story of publican and sinners. Does anybody know where that passage is found? Find that for me. I apologize. Well, I'll read, I'll read it. If, you, if somebody has it, you can give, give it, um, and then we can all look at it together, because i got a couple questions. You have it there, Aaron? Luke 18, Luke 18 verses 9, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, beginning of the parable. You can turn with me to Luke 18, um, verses 9. Thank you, Aaron. And we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at what Jesus said um, about the story of the public and sinners. We know this story. And a lot of things about this story is not hard for us to understand or believe, um, because we've heard it some more. But there may be a couple questions in here that we maybe should look at again. 
I want to read this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Um, I think I'm reading robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like those like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that the man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. First question I'd like to ask. Who was this parable for? Hint, verse 9. Somebody tell us. Tell me. Who was this parable for? Read it. Somebody can read that for me? Okay, read what it says. Mm -hmm. This parable was for those who were confident of their own righteousness. Say, does it say a little more there? And despise others. others. Okay. I'm going to ask the next question. Who was justified? And how was he justified? Who was justified? Yeah, we know that, right? Publican wasn't justified. How was he justified? By his good works? Absolutely not. Not at all. Why does God hate a legalistic gospel? I know. What what about it? When we believe our works are saving us, we're telling God, I don't need your gift. I have what it takes myself. In essence, that's a lot of pride. I want to look at another parable. You can turn with me to Matthew 21 to 15. And here's a parable that I'll be honest with you. This parable and the prodigal son, it's a hard parable for me. I was a third born and I really like fairness. Um, And I just, when I see things not being fair, I struggle. And we know the story here on the parable, and I'll let you just look over it. It's the worker in the vineyard. Maybe, um, I don't think I'm going to read all of it. But in the story, we know how it goes. Kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a household. Let me read the first couple of verses, then we'll get into this. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers unto his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now, I want to ask us a question about this passage. Um, I think we know this passage again. If you're like me, you probably know it too well and struggled with it and not sure what to do with it. What is this passage about? You don't have to give me the parable. It's about salvation. Okay? This passage, I don't know if you know that, but this passage has to do with salvation. And the story goes, the parable goes, that Jesus, or the master, not Jesus, the householder, which we know is probably being Jesus, came and he gave one person a penny, which was a very, very fair wage for to work all day. And he said, sure, I'll work for you. That sounds like a good wage. I can do that. Next one came at middle of the day and he said, I'll give you a penny also. And this guy said, well, sure, this is even better wage. And the last one came an hour before and he said, I'll give you a penny also. Now, what's the problem? Why do we struggle with this parable so much? It doesn't seem fair. What's not fair about the parable? Somebody. Was it not fair what the first person got? 
Or is it not fair if we all don't get the same? What's not fair? Well, sure. And for you who work so hard, and there's a lot of people in this church who are, in a lot of ways, have do a lot for the Lord. And you separate yourselves sometimes from the world. And you do things that are very good for other people. You're giving and giving and giving. It just does not seem fair to you that, or me, that I get the same as somebody who maybe the last hour becomes a Christian and he has not lived his life for the Lord at all. Now, is that fair? Well, it is fair because we don't deserve it ourselves. That's the part we're missing. We're completely missing the fact that we don't deserve any of this. I don't care how righteous you are. I don't care how hard you have worked. I don't care what you have done in your life for the Lord. You don't deserve God's righteousness. None of us do. And yet God has given us mercy in doing that. And the problem is so bad when we somehow think because of everything I've done, all the good I did, it's not fair for those who didn't do as good as me. We're forgetting how unrighteous we are. We're forgetting that our righteousness are his like filthy rags. We don't have that much good. We can't take credit. We have so little. We have taken maybe two inches where the other person has taken a part of an inch towards being righteous. And those comparisons aren't even good. Um, we don't deserve anything. Our righteousness is filthy rags. And yet somehow we think because of our goodness, because of what we get, we deserve a little more than what we got. And we really don't deserve that. We're forgetting how bad we really are and how undeserving we are of salvation. When we expect our works to save us, we forget how utterly insufficient our works really are. Now, for some of you may be thinking by this time, I'm getting this straight from some of our evangelical friends around us. But before you jump to too many conclusions, I'd like to quote, or I'd like to read some quotes from our Anabaptist forefathers. What did the Anabaptist fathers believe? Quote from Menna Simons. Beloved reader, we do not believe nor teach that we are saved by our merits and works, as the envious accuse us of without truth, but that we are saved solely by grace through Jesus Christ. You see, the Anabaptists were accused of not believing in grace, not believing in the grace, not believing in justification by faith. And Menna Simons made it very clear. We absolutely believe that. Our forefathers believed that. They believed there was no way that we were saved by our works. Michael Sattler, the author of the Schleiham Confession of Faith, wrote in Concerning the Sanctification of Christ, he said it like this. Now, this is the one man, the Schleiham Confession of Faith is the faith, um, is the writings that we hold to as Mennonites. Paul says, <clears throat> this is what he said, Paul says to the Romans in the third chapter that they are altogether sinners and come short of the glory which God should have for, from them. Yet apart from merit, they shall be justified by his grace through redemption with Christ accomplished. And it's very clear, if you keep reading this, you, I read many, many things about um, the Anabaptist forefathers. They all were very, very clear on a salvation by grace alone. In 1527, Michael Sattler, the Anabaptist, drew up a confession of faith in seven points. It was adopted by the South Germans and the Swiss Anabaptists at the Schleiham as a bidding of rule of faith and has become known as the Schleiham Confession. 
it is first of all striking that these articles say nothing about God or Jesus Christ and justification by faith. The central truths of the Christian faith are not mentioned. Why? Because the men who adopted this confession were in agreement with all the early reformers on these central truths. If someone were to read the Schleiham Confession of Faith and conclude that Sattler and the Anabaptists did not believe in justification by faith in Christ, they would also need to conclude that they did not believe in God or the deity or Christ either. It's rather obvious that the Anabaptist forefathers believed, like the early reformers, in salvation by faith alone. But the question for them wasn't on salvation. They had the same view of salvation that um, the reformers had in a justification by grace alone. Um, by faith alone. The question for them wasn't on salvation and what keeps us saved, but, it, but what it looks like to be saved. Okay? And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, not the question of, are we saved um, by our works? But the question is, what does it look like to be a Christian? They understood that we are saved by grace alone. They were not legalistic Christians. They also understood what it says in the book of James. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If we are not concerned about holiness and following the commandments of Christ, we should not be asking or thinking what these, what, thinking that these are the works I need to follow in order to be saved, but am I really saved? If I don't have that desire to follow Christ, am I saved? Am I where I should be? Paul was always very clear on salvation and grace. In fact, in most of his books, he started out his teachings with Ephesians, six chapters. His first three chapters were spent in teaching salvation. His next three chapters were spent in practical living. In Romans, the first 11 chapters, or first, yeah, I think it's 11 chapters, it's, again, teaching on salvation, making it very clear how we are saved. And then the last um, Five, six books, or five, six chapters are on practical Christian living. And, a lot, and Paul went, that's how Paul went about teaching. It was always teaching uh, salvation, getting the basis of what we believe, um, and then practical living. Um, I like the verse that Paul gives in, I think it's in Philippians, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearings of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul believed in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he believed that we need to live that out in practical living. The Anabaptists, like the early Reformers, believed in faith alone. They understood our works will never save us, but they also knew that a Christian will walk, that a Christian will always that a Christian will walk after holiness. Here's a quote by Dean Taylor. Modern evangelists are quick to point out the fact that to spend eternity with Christ, we must be born again. In describing this necessity to be born again, they often highlight the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, this is all very appropriate and even very accurate and true. But much like the broken clock that is accurate only for a moment, this is usually where modern evangelist salvation stops. It started, out a good, it started out good, but it didn't keep going. The result is a salvation that is reduced to the decision or a prayer and not a new life. When salvation is explained this way, the results can be devastating. Even the most sincere walk down the aisle or the most passionate sinner prays. Prayer is no substitute for Jesus' words. Take up thy cross daily and follow me. So we understand that, yes, 
We don't need to be saved. But yes, we as Christians need to walk in faith. We need to live a life of of true Christianity. Holiness begins on the inside with salvation, but holiness is always a living faith. Um, And I'll probably talk more about that in in our next um, section, on in our next message on holiness. Because of what Jesus did for us, our faith will always be alive in our walk, but also alive in our spirit. Um, it seems the devil is always creating a reaction or getting us to go into one ditch or the other. And I think uh, we see that so often. We had the reformers, the early reformers, who understood that the Catholics were, were believing in something more than faith alone. Um, and then it got to the place where the reformers got to the place where they said, it's just faith, we don't need to walk. Um, now, not all the reformers followed that. Um, Martin Luther probably was one of the, who was more the extreme on that. John Calvin believed in a, a purity. Um, and yet, we see there's often a reaction. And we have to watch, um, as a Christian, are we reacting to, to one or the other? Dean Taylor also said this, quote, The scripture plainly teaches that we are saved by grace through faith. No self-respecting Christian argues that point. The problem comes by the fact that Luther and many others after him have redefined the terms. The terms grace and faith no longer mean what they used to. Today, grace is basically defined as forgiveness. Some may say it's unmerited favor. The term faith has been tragically reduced to mean a mere mental term and not something we live out. And again, I will talk about that maybe more in the next message. But faith needs to be something we live out. Okay, it starts with the grace of God living in us and what God has done, done for us, and then we need to live it out. If holiness starts on the inside and we know salvation needs to go further than our mind or soul, it always starts on, but it always starts on the inside. And we're going to talk more about that um, I know we say it becomes practical by how we live, but I would like to go a little deeper because I know there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? Um, And we need to have a heart change. I can have all the accountability in the world and not have a pure heart. I believe the only thing left to guide or judge us here on earth is our conscience. And I want to get into that. I'm going to take a break now from... um, from the section of the message on salvation, and I'm going to talk about our pure hearts. Now, what is a pure heart? I want us to think about this a little bit. I know I'm taking a shift here. Um, how do we get a pure heart? Maybe I'll ask us this question. As we think about um, having a pure heart or having a clean heart, um, what does that look like? Now, we say it looks... In practical living, yes. But let's just take the practical living apart. How do we know if somebody has a pure heart? You know, we really can't tell. Now, we can tell in their living. But can we really tell? Can a person fake it? Yes, you can. Um, Our conscience is the only indicator of our heart. I'm going to read a verse here. And, and Paul was accused of many things. And Paul, if you read, his, uh, read Paul's writings, you'll hear Paul over and over say, I have a clear conscience. That's, what, that's, the, only thing I can, that's the only thing I can speak to. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says this, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with false 
fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Paul constantly said, I have a clear conscience. Okay? We're going to talk about that clear conscience. What does that look like? This is so important for me and you to understand how we can keep a clear conscience or to understand um, how we can keep a pure heart. Maybe you should put it that way. And we'll talk a little bit about what the conscience is. Okay? Now, the conscience is not... Who, who has a conscience? Everybody does. We're given a conscience when we're born. It's the moral law written within us. We all have a conscience. A humanist has a conscience. He will say this is what his conscience is. So con- our conscience is not our hearts, but it's an indicator of our heart. Now we'll talk, talk a little bit more about what the conscience relates. I want to open up this whole idea on the conscience with a story about John Bunyan. Who's John Bunyan? He wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, John Bunyan was a very poor man, but he preached the gospel on the streets at a time when it was illegal to do that. He said, my conscience keeps me preaching the gospel. Eventually, he got stuck in prison. Three months after he was put in prison, maybe I should just step back, he had a wife and children, and he had, one of, uh, he had a daughter who was blind. They were very poor. They had very little. Three months after he was put in prison, the judge said, you can be released if you promise to quit preaching God. John Bunyan ended up being in prison for 12 more years. Why? He said, my conscience won't let me. Um, reading some, I don't have some of, reading some of John Bunyan's, what he said about his daughter and his wife and family. He said, my heart is tore apart for my wife and family and my daughter, especially my blind daughter. He said, I may lose her um, in prison because there's no one there to take care of her. Eventually, people came to prison and they begged John Bunyan to give up his preaching so he could help his family and children. And this is what John Bunyan said. Uh, I will never give up my preaching unless I make of my conscience a continual botchery and a slaughter shop. Unless putting out my own eyes, I commit me to the blind to lead me. I have determined the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer if frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on my eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and my principles. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to stand up to truth and follow what God has told us the way John Bunyan was willing to? He said, if I don't, Heed my conscience and the principles of God's word. I will make my conscience a, what are the words, a continual botchery and slaughter shop. And that's what we do when we go against our conscience, when we go against what the word of God tells us. A clear conscience starts in the soul and produces a holy life. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to give us an illustration of maybe a little bit of what our conscience is and sometimes what we do with our conscience. In 1975, um, a Boeing 707 with 181 passengers um, went straight into the mountains of Spain. And of course, like they do with any plane wreck, um, they look for that black box, and they eventually found the black box, and they open it up, 
and they listened to the voice in the black box. And the voice in the black box went like this. Um, there was a voice, a syndicated voice saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And eventually you heard the voice of the pilot say, shut up, gringo. And he flipped the, flipped the box off and went into the mountain. Now, that's terrible. And I don't know the reasons or what happened there. He probably thought he had it under control. But I'm trying to make an illustration. How often do we treat our conscience the same way? Um, how often are we willing to flip our conscience off to be destroyed into the mountain? Um, something we should think about. The key to conscience, the key to holiness is a clear conscience. What is our conscience and how does it work? Now let's talk about our conscience a little bit. And this is where we get in um, a little deeper. When we talk about our heart or our soul, we're talking about what's in the inside. And the easiest way to assess our heart and see how our heart is doing is take a look at our conscience. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which is, he has called you. The eyes of our heart um, being enlightened. Our conscience. If we want to look at a person's inner soul, which we can't, we can't look at a person's inner soul, we have to personally assess our own soul. Um, we personally would like to know how we are doing, we have to ask our conscience, the eyes of our heart, how are we doing? Now we better, <clears throat> now we better hope our conscience is running properly when we check into our hearts, right? Is our conscience always running properly? Obviously not. The world is full of a lot of people with seared consciences. Um, consciences that are not working properly. Here's a quote. A conscience is an inward sense that helps us become better people. It is like having a different person with us analyzing and evaluating what we're doing. Intend to do or what we, what we intend to do or what we have done and judges our actions as to whether we are good or bad. It can either conform confirm that we have done what is right or accuse us for doing what is wrong. And Romans 2, 14 and 15 reads to that. Um, I think I'm going to skip over that. The conscience is a gift from God, a special tool God has given us that acts like a warning device. We all have it. Every person's born with it. It's a gift of God that gives us the moral law in us and tells us whether we're doing right or wrong. A conscience could be compared to a GPS system. Um, God gave every human a conscience as a guiding system to help us do the right thing. Just like any sensitive guiding system, in order for it to work properly, it has to be cared for, maintained, and fully charged. Think of a guiding system like a GPS. A GPS <clears throat> for a GPS to work properly, it has to be connected to a satellite. And we know what that satellite is, um, the Holy Ghost or the Word of God. And we'll talk about that maybe in a bit. Another comparison to our conscience would be pain. Um, I read the book Gift of Pain a few years back. And in that book it talks about pain being a gift. You understand leprosy is what? Some of you may know that. Leprosy is, is basically a disease that kills our sensory organs. Um, or sensory yeah, organs, yeah, I guess it be organs. But in, in um, India, there would be children that would wake up without fingers. How'd that happen? Well, the rats chewed their fingers off. Um, sounds very, very terrible. A child doesn't have any, and they had leprosy. They didn't have any sensory um, 
uh, sensors in their fingers, they would allow something to chew on it. Or there would be people that would open the doorknob and break their hand. Um, and so you, go over to, uh, you went over to um, India, and there was a lot of people without hands or feet. And it didn't come because a disease tore their feet, feet off or their hands off. It came because they would tear their hands off themselves. They had no pain. Um, and that's a little bit what our conscience is. Our conscience, God gives us that pain to tell us, stop, pull up, change. And if we don't, we know what happens. Um, the thing about leprosy, a lot of people, a lot of lepers or a lot of people with diabetes, which diabetes is a lot like leprosy, are blind. Why? They just rub their eyes and they destroy their sight. Um, without that sensory organ saying, don't, um, that hurts, you continue to hurt yourself or continue to wear yourself down. And I think conscience is a good um, illustration of that. It helps us from destroying our conscience helps us from destroying our soul. It accuses or excuses us from all our actions. It's interesting. Um, in history, we studied the Greeks, and I used to always have this image of the Greeks, and the Greeks goddess as some terrible, terrible things, and completely heathen. And a lot, yes, the Greeks were not Christians, but they had some very interesting gods. And they had the goddess, what they called Nemes, and it was the goddess of conscience. And they illustrated it very well. Um, and in this Nemes, there was a picture of a man who was running from Nemes with a sword, running as fast as he can, away from his conscience. Um, and the Greeks had this idea that when Nemes, who was, meant, um, who was the goddess of conscience, would be there striking, there telling, bringing fear. Now, we say we shouldn't have fear. And in today's psychology, we keep saying we need to have self-esteem and we shouldn't have fear. Yes, we should have lots of fear for our sin. Don't ever believe the fact that we should not be fearful for the things we do wrong. Yes, we need to change. We need to repent. If we're not fearful, if we don't hate our sin, we will continue on. Um, So it's very important that we use our conscience as a guide. And when our conscience says, no, stop. And I'll say this. I was very convicted when I started studying this because I've done this to my conscience so often I like to have a good self-esteem. I like to not feel too bad about myself. But my sin should not make me feel good about myself. And I should have a tender conscience. And sometimes we talk about the tender conscience. Um, He has too tender of a conscience. I'm not sure we get that right. A tender conscience is often a very good thing. Um, Something we should think about maybe. Holiness comes from a fully informed conscience. And... I'm sorry. Let's step back a step. How does our conscience work? Conscience is basically our soul reflecting on our inner self. Everyone has a conscience whether we're born. But in order for our conscience to work properly, it needs to function under what? The direction of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit needs to function, uh, help us function in our conscience and the Word of God. The conscience is not our source of light but must let light reflect through us. And when we have the correct source of light reflecting through us, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, the conscience will work properly. Now you see the problem in so many churches. And you see the problem that happens so often. We have a watered-down gospel. And what happens to our conscience? Um, in any church where there's a watered-down gospel, there's going to be weak consciences and lack of holiness. In any person where we have a watered-down gospel, where we don't spend time in the Word of God, and we don't let the Holy Spirit direct our lives, we will have a weak conscience. 
and we will have a watered-down um, view. Holiness comes from a fully informed conscience, and churches where the Word of God is replaced with entertainment and watered-down gospel, you will always find unholiness. How are we doing here at Weavertown? Are we in the Word of God? Are we digging into the Word of God? Is our gospel, does our gospel come from the Word of God, or does it come from um, other sources? How do we keep a good conscience? The answer is very clear in 1 Timothy 1. This charge I commit unto thee, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, have become shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How do we keep a good conscience? Brothers and sisters, we have to go to war. We have to be in warfare with our conscience. We have to, what does he say there? Read that again. I charge and commit thee, Timothy, according to the prophecy which were before on thee, that thou by them might war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. See, the devil is out to destroy our conscience. And we have to realize that this is a fight for our souls. If our conscience is weak, our souls we're going to lose our souls. We're going to be shipwrecked, just like it says in those verses. Thou mightest, <clears throat> thou mightest war a good warfare. Is in battle for, Satan is in battle for our mind and conscience. We need to fight or our conscience will be shipwrecked. There are two basic ways of destroying our conscience. And I want to just point those two ways out um, on how our conscience can be destroyed. And I think somebody's, maybe I'll ask you, what do you think the two ways are? You might have, Pick that up already. What are the two basic ways that the devil used to trick us in destroying our conscience? Anybody? Okay, neglect. Neglect the word of God. Let me just give them to you. The first way is to misinform our conscience. Okay, misinform it. Just have, have, and you know many people today that have misinformed consciences. They believe in things that are way out there. And they think it's the right way. Second way is to silence our conscience. And let's first of all go to the misinforming of our conscience. This is twisted moral law. How do we get twisted moral law? How do we get to the place where our, our, we believe anything? And we think anything's good. Um, a humanist. He has a twisted conscience. He has, he has got to believe that, that um, he doesn't need to be right with God. His conscience tells him it's okay to live the way he lives. Um, the first way to misinform our conscience is <clears throat> not to spend time in the Word of God. If we want to misinform conscience, and we'll get one, if we do not spend time in the Word of God. Or not see the importance of the Word of God. Not believing in the inerrancy of Scripture. Postmodernism is a typical example, is a very good example of people who have misinformed consciences. They're not valuing scripture. And Paul says, this is the shipwreck that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy. And he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I mean, they were two men who had misinformed consciences, who, have, who allowed, um, who rejected truth. So a misinformed conscience is someone who rejects truth. And brothers and sisters, I'll admit this is something I have to watch in my heart, okay? That, that we, I need to understand truth. I need to get into the Word. 
I need to dig into the word to understand. And the second way is to silence our conscience. Turn off that switch. Refuse to listen to our conscience. We need to feel the pain of our sin. If there's a time for emotion to be important in our lives, it is when we feel the pain of our sin. No, not the pain of what others did to me, but the pain of my sin. And unfortunately, psychology has gotten to that point. Even Christian psychology spend many, many hours talking about the pain other people did to me. And I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about the pain that has happened to us. But if we spend less time talking about our sin and how I have pained other people, our conscience, we will be flipping off our conscience. Too often, our, <clears throat> too often we spend time talking about what everybody did wrong to me and forget about our own sin. When we see the wrong and the sin in our lives, um, that is an informed conscience. That's a sharp conscience. That's a sincere conscience. We need sensitive, tender consciences when it comes to pertaining to our sins. You see, no matter how hard we try to silence our conscience, no conscience will be silenced forever. I'll say that again. No matter how hard we're going to silence our conscience, no conscience will be silenced forever. What do I mean by that? See, when we get to heaven... I think one of the greatest, um, well, one of the biggest struggles uh, for people that come to get, to get to the end of their life, and they realize when they get to, um, when they die, that their conscience was seared. Because when we die, we're going to see everything that ever happened to us. We will fully understand, our conscience will be completely, we'll understand everything. So for a sinner, when he gets to heaven, he will see everything he has done wrong. He will see everything he has decided to choose, and he will see it's the error to all his ways. And brothers and sisters, that's what hell is going to be. It's the worst thing possible to never, ever have your conscience released. Imagine that. You know you spent all your time here on earth, and you weren't covered by the blood of Christ, and your conscience continues to bug you for eternity. That's what hell is. Um, and some, <clears throat> when we die, we, ha <clears throat> we have not had and have not had our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our conscience will again become fully functional. And that's scary. That will be the worst part of eternity in hell. A conscience that will torment a person forever. And their conscience will keep them from ever having peace. Always reminding them of what they knew to do and didn't do. I'll say um, our conscience sometimes, even here on earth, does that in small ways, um, continually to, to, to tell us to change. And, some, and I'm talking about the unbeliever here too. In some ways, you see people on earth are already being tormented without peace for, for things they're doing. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Conclusion, I'd like to say, we still all have time to get a clear conscience here on earth. And a clear conscience happens when we bring our sins before the Father and wash our sins. I want to make it very clear. Um, I'd like to conclude with a clear call for all of us to come to repentance and clear our conscience. And I realize for some of us it may be clearing the conscience of something we have done 
Uh, we may be born again, and we still need a clearer conscience. Some of us may be for the first time, where Christ's blood needs to come into our hearts and completely wash away and cleanse our sins of our conscience. Like it says in Hebrews 10.10, 10, and by that will we have... And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice in the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Christ is before the Father waiting today to make us holy and to clear our conscience. But we need to ask, we need to, we need to take a look at our guilty conscience, the sins we have committed, and be reminded by our conscience and Christ that Christ will sprinkle our hearts from evil from an evil conscience, and our bodies can be washed with pure water from his word. If you can, let's kneel together. Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for being with us. We thank you so much for your grace, and thank you for what you've done in our hearts. Thank you that um, you came and you washed our uh, sins, and that you um, freely gave us the grace that you um, have given to us. I pray now that today that we could continue to um, remember to um, tune into your word, to live our lives in a way that um, understands that we need you in, in everything we do. Um, help us to, to keep a clear conscience. Help us to have a tender conscience. Help us to look to you um, for that tender conscience. Thank you, God, for the group here, and thank you for what you've done in our lives and for the blessings of coming together like this. Just pray that um, this coming week, that as you um, speak to us, that we could hear your word and hear your conscience and that we could choose right and help us also when we, choo uh, when we choose not to do right, that we could clear our conscience by your blood and by your word. Thank you for all you've done for us in our lives and just be with us the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.